All praises to the Most High, Yahuwah and His Son, the Hamashiach. On this glorious Shabbat holy day that He gave us from the beginning. Welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast, and I am Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we want to welcome you to the Science of the Covenant and our live podcast. Now, we are live, so if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com while we are live, and we will try to get your question or comment on the air before we close out. And if you have a question or comment after we close out, be feel free to email us again at science of the covenant at gmail.com and we will get it on the next episode. So as you know, we took a little pause uh, during the feast, but now we're going to go back to the studies that pastor is giving us on the mark of the beast so pastor as far as the mark of the beast what will we be dealing with today oh, what what we have considered today is that we have been talking about the mark of the beast as it relates to the forehead or the mind and the intellect but in this particular study we want to uh, begin to lay a foundation of how the mark of the beast is in the hand because it speaks about these two aspects of it being in the head or the forehead and also in the hand. So we want to look and see what does it mean to put the mark in the hand. And then we want to start that today. And then the following weeks, we want to build on this foundation. All right. Okay, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go into uh, our subject uh, for today. And the Bible, and then we'll uh, pursue this subject. Eternal Father, we thank you that we can come back uh, on your Shabbat to be able to receive, O oh, Heavenly Father, from you the heavenly blessings that you have bestowed upon your children. On this, your holy day, we thank you for the past blessings, and we thank you for the blessings now and also for the future. Thank you that you have brought us through another week. And now, Father, as we again pursue your word, may it be to us as the bread of life and also the waters, O heaven, Father, of your word, may quench our hunger and our thirst to give us what we need. And as we continue this subject, we ask that your Holy Spirit may be able to bring home to, to us the truth of the matter, that we may be the better for it. And as we look in the last days, Lord, about the mark of the beast, that we can be able to discern with clarity just what it is. These and other blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay, our first text that we want to consider is found in the book of Revelation. And here in the book of Revelation, we want to turn back to a familiar passage that we have been dealing with uh, throughout our discourses on the Mark of the Beast, which is in Revelation chapter 13. 
And we want to consider two verses there in Revelation 9, 13. In Revelation 13, we want to look at uh, verses 16 and 17. And here in these uh, 13th chapter, starting with verse 16, it says, And he causes it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So in these two, two, two particular verses, they highlight uh, the subject that we are uh, concerned with here. And I want to look at the mark of the beast in the right hand. And the Bible uh, particularly points out that if you get to mark of the beast, it's going to be in the right hand. And so we want to kind of understand what this is talking about. Thus far, we have defined that the mark of the beast as Sunday keeping. And as we look at Sunday keeping as the mark of the beast, uh, we want to understand uh, this subject. So what we understand is that Sunday keeping alone isn't considered the mark of the beast. But in order for there to be a mark, there must also be some coercion to receive, to receive it. Now, when we read in Revelation 17, uh, not 17, but Revelation uh, 13, and we read verse, verses uh, 15 and 17, it tells us, it said, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And then in verse 17, it says, and that no man may buy or sell, save he that hath the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So what, what we are looking at is that in order for Sunday keeping to be the mark of the beast, there must be some force. You must be forced to do it. And if there's no force, then it, it cannot be a mark. So at this time in, in, in our history of the world, it's not considered a mark, but it will become a mark when the force or the coercion is applied to it. Now, when we consider uh, the coercion, we are given a criteria or what we call the uh, coercion criteria by which the beast makes its mark. So let's look at the criteria because he has a criteria in which he's going to make the mark, and we want to know what the criteria is. Now, we've just read in verses 15 and 17 of the 13th chapter of Revelation, it gave us those areas. First, one is given a death decree. In other words, he said, if you don't take the mark, uh, there's a death decree. And second, one cannot buy. And the third criteria is one cannot sell. So you got those three uh, criterias to coerce one into getting the mark of the beast. First, there's the death decree that is before the person. 
Second, that person cannot buy. And third, that person cannot sell. And with these three types of coercion, necessary pressure is produced to make individuals succumb to the receiving of the mark of the beast. <coughs> okay, so when, when those, when those uh, three things happen, uh, then when a person is under that, then it can become the mark of the beast when a person uh, gives in to that type of co coercion. However, our study is not only receiving the mark of the beast, but rather how is the mark of the beast received in one's hand? So this is what we want to focus on, is the mark of the beast in one's right hand. Let us approach this subject in a methodical manner by defining it in segments. If we're talking about the mark of the beast in the right hand, we'll start by getting an understanding of what the word mark means and then who the beast is. So let us get started with the mark first. Okay, we talked about the mark. We have been able to define the mark as Sunday keeping when one is coerced into keeping the first day holy in opposition to keeping the holy, keeping holy the seventh day, and the penalty for not doing so would be death, unable to buy, and unable to sell. Okay, so now let's look at the mark. Now, we've already stated that the mark of the beast will be the coercion of an individual to keep Sunday holy. Okay. This is what it's all about, to keep Sunday holy. Okay, so if that is what the mark of the beast is, then we want to find out who is it that is given uh, this mark. Okay. Now, it's obvious that when we read Revelation 16, I mean, Revelation, the 16th verse in the 13th chapter, the Bible says it is the beast. So for the next segment that we want to deal with is the mark of the beast. Okay, now we know what the mark is, is enforced Sunday keeping. Now, let us find out who the beast is, who gives the mark. So now that we see that what the mark is, let us now consider where this mark comes from. Now we understand that this mark comes from the beast of whom we have dealt with earlier in our studies. The beast spoken of here is the one which came up out of the sea. Now let's turn to that. It came up out of the sea, and that's in Revelation chapter 13 and the first verse. Okay, now the Bible tells us, he said, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blaspheme. Okay, so here we see that this is the beast that came up out of the sea. Okay, so if this is the beast that came up out of, out of the sea, then we need to define 
symbolic, what this symbolic language of coming up out of the sea is. Okay. Now, now we understand that this mark comes from the beast of whom we dealt with in Revelation 13. And now the beast spoken of here is one which came up out of the sea. So such a beast as this comes up from a populated area because we studied that a populated area is like uh, dealing with the waters. There's the waters populated area and the waters represent the people. Now, according to the Holy Writ, a beast represents a king or kingdom, and a sea is symbolic of multitude of peoples. Okay, so let us turn into the, uh, the book of Daniel. Let us turn to the book of Daniel, and in, in the book of Daniel, we would like to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Okay, now in Daniel chapter 7, we want to go to uh, some verses there that would uh, enlighten us on the subject of who the beast is. Okay. Now, Daniel 7, we want to consider uh, verse 3. Now, hear what verse 3 says. Daniel 7, 3 says, it says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So here Daniel is speaking some of the same language that Revelation speak, because when you deal with uh, Revelation, you're also dealing with Daniel, because Daniel is the one that was initially given the prophecies that are contained in the book of Revelation. So it's a good idea, and it's a good uh, way of learning. Uh, Revelation is by corresponding it with uh, the book of Daniel. Now, we've already seen, it says, four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. Now, let us let us stay right here in Daniel uh, chapter 7. And this time, we want to look at uh, verse number 17. Now, it says, four great beasts. Now, in verse 17, it said, these great beasts, which are, which are four, are four kings. Okay, so there it is. It says that these beasts are four kings. So we got four kings, we got four kingdoms, which shall arise out of the earth. So Daniel is telling us that these four kings are being represented by the beast. So kings are beasts or kingdoms are beasts. Now let us return back to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, this time we want to go to Revelation chapter 17. Okay. Now we, we know symbolically that the beasts represent kings or kingdoms, okay? Now let's find out what's coming up out of the sea, what the waters represent. And we turn to Revelation uh, chapter 17, and we're going to look at verse number 15. And the Bible says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So you see, the coming up out of the sea represented the waters, and the waters represented peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, this beast is the fourth beast of Daniel 7, 
And it also cor correlates with, with the fourth kingdom in Daniel's, uh, in Daniel 2. Now, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about these four kingdoms. And in Daniel 7, Daniel had a, 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 a dream about these uh, four kingdoms. And so when we read in the book of Revelation, this fourth beast is Rome. We know, we know that that was the fourth beast. And when we study history, we find out that there were uh, some kingdoms. And when we start with the book of Daniel and also Revelation in the book of Daniel, the four beasts was you had Babylon, which was the first beast. And then the second beast was Medo-Persia, the Persian and the Medes. The Persians and the Medians, they got together and they overcame Babylon. So the second kingdom is Medo-Persia. And then the third kingdom was Greece under Alexander the Great. And he was able to overcome the Medes and the Persians. Now the fourth kingdom that overcame uh, uh, Greece under the Alexandrian Empire was Rome. Now if you remember in history as well as in the Bible, Rome was never overthrown, but Rome fell, but it was never overthrown by any other uh, uh, power. And as you remember, Rome did not really have what we call a religion. Rome was considered a pagan nation. And then when a lot of the Roman people began to accept Christianity, Rome embraced Christianity. And now we not only have a pagan Rome, but we have what you call paper wrong, and paper wrong is wrong with a religious power. So now, what we see here in the fourth beast, which is wrong, is a political religious empire exerting its power to conform others to their religious dogma. Thus far, let us put together what we have so far. Now, the mark is enforced. Sunday sacredness by Romanism. It is wrong under the guise of the Roman church that is enforcing Sunday keeping as a day which is holy. See, this is, this is coming from Rome. And so when we talk about enforced keeping of Sunday as sacred, it's coming from the beast, and the beast is wrong under a religious and a political power, and we call that the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is the one that espouses this. They are the ones that change the sacred day of, uh, of, seven, of the seventh day of the week to the first day, which is Sunday. Now, with this in mind, let us proceed further with the mark of the beast in the right hand. Okay, so it, it should be clear that when we talk about the mark of the beast, the mark is Sunday keeping in force, and the beast is wrong. So under Romanism, Romanism is given to the entire world. Every multitude, people, nation, that they should keep Sunday, the first day of the week, as sacred. And it's going to come a time, it's going to be enforced. It's going to be enforced by you not being able to sell or buy 
and with the decree of a death decree if you don't do it. But at this time, as we pointed out, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a mark yet until those uh, premises are put in place. So, so now, when we turn to the book of Revelation, uh, in Revelation 13, 16, okay, we go back to there, Revelation 13, 16. It said, and he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, to receive a mark in their right hand, okay? So, so the beast is not only trying to put the mark in our foreheads, as we've studied, he's also trying to put it in our right hand. However, it states uh, that it would be in their right hand, okay? So, when we look at verse 16, it said to receive a mark in their right hand, okay? So now you got two places. You got a right hand or the forehead, but we have talked about the forehead, but we are now talking about the right hand. So let's look at this right hand and get some understanding of, about that. While the text speaks particularly about the mark of the beast being in the right hand, we ask the question, is there any significance as to why it states the right hand? What possible significance could there be in the right hand? In the book of Revelation alone, there is reference made to the right hand several times. So what we want to do is look at the book of Revelation uh, itself and look at this, this uh, terminology, the right hand. So we can properly understand when we get into the mark of the beast in the hand, we understand what it means by the right hand. Okay. Let us turn to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, we're talking about the right hand. All right. Now, when we look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 16, notice what it says. It said, and he had in his right hand seven stars... And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shined in his strength. But the, what we are concerned here, he said he had in his right hand seven stars, seven stars. And we know that the stars that he had is symbolically representing uh, seven angels as, as when we look in the uh, uh, verse, verse, verse 20. In verse 20 of the same first chapter of Revelation says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven uh, assemblies or churches. So the seven stars that he had in his right hand are seven angels, okay? So here we see uh, talking about seven uh, we was talking about the right, uh, talking about the right hand. So here we see uh, significance of the right hand. Now let us turn to Revelation chapter two and verse one. Notice what it says. It said, "Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write: These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden." lampstands, okay? So it speaks again, reemphasizing the seven 
re-emphasizing the right hand, the right hand. All right, let us look at another reference to the right hand that is found in Revelations chapter 5. Okay, we want to go to Revelation chapter 5, and we want to look at a couple of verses there dealing with the uh, right hand. And here in Revelations 1, I mean 5, 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, so here it's talking about the, he saw the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within on the backside sealed with seven seals. So he saw in the right hand of him a book with seven seals on it. But I guess back in those days, they didn't call it books. They called it the scrolls. He saw a scroll, and the scroll was rolled up, and it was sealed with seven seals. Okay, now in the same fifth chapter of Revelation, where it talked about the right hand having a scroll with seven seals, it further uh, speaks about the left hand again in verse number seven. Now notice what verse seven says. It says, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. All right, so somebody took the scrolls out of the hand, out of the right hand of him that was holding the book. Okay, so I hope you're getting the picture. It's dealing with the right hand. So we want to make a, a good, get a good, clear understanding of what it is talking about the right hand. Now let us turn into the book of uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 10. And here in, in Revelation chapter 10, uh, we want to look at verse number 2, Revelation 10, 2. Now here it's talking about this angel that stood. It said, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the the earth, okay, well, this is not quite uh, the hand, but it's still talking about the left, uh, the left, the left uh, foot in the right hand, okay, all right, this is not addressing our issue succinctly as we wanted, because he said he had in his hand a little book that was open, okay, so we see it's still talking about the hand, but when he got down further, it was talking about the the right foot and the left foot on the earth. Okay, let us go further. Let us go to, let us go back to our original text in uh, Revelation thirteen sixteen, that when it speaks concerning uh, the right hand. Okay, so we see that the right hand is found a number of places in Revelation. And of course, if you make it a study, you can find many places in in the Bible itself that speaks about the right hand, not just in Revelation. So what we're trying to deduce from this is what does right hand mean? It appears that when the term right hand is spoken of, it isn't just speaking concerning a position, but rather right hand is magnifying a sense of importance 
and a sense of authority and a truthfulness. In a courtroom, when a witness takes the stand to testify, one is sworn in by placing one's hand upon the Bible, and they are told, uh, you, will you tell the truth? Uh, in other words, they take their hand and put on the Bible, and they swear to tell the truth about the testimony that they are about to give them. And do you swear to tell the truth, so help you Elohim, by swearing, by putting your hand on the Bible, that you will tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you Elohim. And they would say, I do. And when they say, I do, by placing their hands on the Bible, then they would sit down to the witness because you would expect that if they swore by putting their right hand on the Bible, that they're going to tell the truth that the testimony they give will be truthful. Now, we know that in all cases when people do that, they may tell a falsehood, but the intention is that when you put your hand and swear on the Bible to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you Elohim, that you will tell the truth. And not only uh, in the courtroom do we see this, but we see it when a person takes an office. You know, you may take an office such as the president, okay, and if it's the president of the United States, I understand that when the president of the United States uh, is sworn in, they take the Bible that Abraham Lincoln had, and he was sworn in with, and they present that to all of the succeeding presidents after Lincoln. They take Lincoln's Bible, and they are to put their hand upon the Holy Writ, and they are given a few words about what their office is and will they uphold that office, and what do they do? They tell them to lay their hands, their right hand, upon the Abraham Lincoln's Bible and swear that they would uphold their, their office and then when the ceremony is, is over, then they, we are looking for that president to uphold that office because they have been sworn in by putting their right hand upon the Bible that Abraham Lincoln was sworn in with. And then we also have a custom in our churches that when a new convert comes into the church or a person may be baptized into the church, don't we also say that we will give that person the right hand of fellowship? All right, so what we understand by the right hand is not simply that it is a position on the right side, but rather the position is a sign of one's allegiance and integrity. So when you put your hand on that Bible or when you use your right hand, uh, it's, it's talking about uh, how sincere you are in doing what you're doing. Consequently, when we speak in terms of the right hand, it carries the significance of being loyal to those who put trust in one. That's what the right hand, man. Now that we have some idea about the right hand, let us now apply this meaning 
to the mark of the beast in their right hand. In addition to an understanding of the right hand, let us also understand what a hand symbolizes. There are a plethora of scripture which speak about a hand and what it represents. So we want to see what does a hand. Now we know what the right represents, but now we don't want to know what a hand represents. So let us start off and look at what a hand represents. Let us go to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, okay, here in Genesis chapter 5, we want to look at uh, a verse there. Now, Genesis chapter 5, and we want to look at verse number 29, okay, Genesis 5, 29, okay. Now, here the Bible says in Genesis verse 29 of the fifth chapter of Genesis, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning the work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which Yah has cursed. Okay, now, what we are concerned with in this verse, it says they're talking about Noah, and then they say, this same, talking about Noah, shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands. So that was a there was a connection between uh, the work and the and the toil of our hands. So when we look in that verse, you see work and hands kind of go together because when we work, what we do we do? We use our hands when we work. So they are connecting hands and works together. Okay, let's look at another text found in the book of Psalms. And in, in, in the book of Psalms, we want to go to Psalms, uh, and we want to look at verse 8 in the book of Psalms. Okay, Psalms, and we want to look at the 8th division. Okay, Psalms, the 8th division. Now, in Psalms, the 8th division, we want to look at a, a couple of texts there. Now, in Psalms, and in that 8th division, what we want to look at is a couple of verses there. The couple of verses. Now, the first verse that we want to look at is verse number 3, Psalms 8.3. It says, When I consider... The, thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Okay, we know the fingers are part of the hand, okay? And then we look at verse number six, it says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Okay, so what we have here is that he says the works of thy hands. In other words, when Elohim made the creation, then he used his hands. So again, we see the correlation of the works of thy hands, okay? And now let us turn to the songs, the song of Solomon. We're going to turn to the song of Solomon, okay? And in the song of Solomon, we want to look at chapter, uh, uh, we want to look at uh, chapter 7, I believe. Yes, yeah, chapter 7. And 
in the seventh uh, chapter of the Song of Solomon, we want to look at verse number one. And here the Bible says, How beautiful are the feet with shoes, O prince daughter. Thy joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. So again, we see it. You like in the works of these particular shoes to the hands of a cunning workman. So work and hands are again going hand in hand. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 29. And we want to look at the 23rd verse. Isaiah 29, 23 says, But when he seeth his children... The work of my, of work of mine hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the holy one of Jacob, and shall fear the Elohim of Israel. So, if we look at all of the texts from Genesis, Psalms, Song of Solomon, and Isaiah, and there's a plethora of other texts as well. They are uniting work and hand as one and the same. In other words, when you work, that's the labor of your hands. And when you talk about the hands, you're talking about our works. From these passages, we can see that hands are symbolic of one's works. One's works. Therefore, we can say our hands or our hand represent our work or works. Now let us associate this with the mark of the beast. In Revelation 16, in Revelation verse 16 in the 13th chapter, the Bible says, and he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand. As we pointed out earlier, that the mark that we we are talking about was put in the foreheads, which we understand to be our minds. Therefore, this mark has to do with our intellect. So if the mark is of an intellectual nature and the hand being used to do physical labor or work, how does a hand relate to something that is meant of is of a mental state? At this juxtaposition, let us see if we can correlate the forehead and the hands. And we would refer to this part of our study as the correlation ship of the mind and the hand. And we'll call this part of our study the mentality of the hand, the mentality of the hand. Now, in our understanding of our man and hand cor correlation, it, would, it wouldn't take too much understanding to know that there is a brain and a hand correlation for the simple fact that the hand carries out the commands and wishes of the brain impulses. Isn't it what we do? Isn't what we do? is what we think, and vice versa, what we think is what we do. So if it is the hand which carries out the thoughts 
of the man, it would seem very plausible that what goes in one's mind and what and what one does with one's hand has a connection by way of the nervous system. Now, with this in mind, let us see how the mark of the beast is placed in the hand. As we pointed out, the man deals with thought and the hand concerns itself with work. With our understanding of the brain and the hand correlation, we can draw the conclusion that our thinking and working goes hand in hand. We think about our work and we work out our thinking. Consequently, when we deal with the mark of the beast, there are at least four basic aspects of it. Now, we're going to stop at this point, and we will try and cover these four aspects in our next discourse. But what we have shown thus far is how the mind and the hand works together. And we're going to show how the mark of the beast is made in the hand. So we will conclude at this uh, particular point. You know, it's interesting, too. Uh regarding the right hand is that as far as I know, right hand is more dominant mm-hmm. in this world than left. Right. Right. And all uh, you have, you find more people that are right-handed than left-handed mm-hmm. and how all of this too ties into, like you were saying, um, labor, you know, because mm-hmm. when you labor, uh, the majority of, um, Laboring is in the hands mm-hmm. uh, because no matter what you work, you do, even if it's computer work, sitting behind the desk, typing mm-hmm. on a computer, uh-huh. hands, uh, assembling hands, mm-hmm. you know, everything has to do pretty much with the hands. Our feet mm-hmm. takes us places, but it's our hands that to me that really put in the labor for work. Right. No matter what you do, you can be playing a sport, laboring in a sport, hands, Hands, right. You know, with the exception yep. of maybe soccer, which is the feet, but every other thing is hands. That's true. And all. Now, you, you said that, uh, just to rehash, it was uh, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, and what was the f- other one? You had Babylon, Babylon. Medo Persia, okay. Greece, and then Rome. And. Rome was the only one that was not conquered by man. No, if you read your history, you find Rome was never conquered. Rome was simply uh, uh, it 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 disintegrated. It 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 kind of well, I wouldn't say dis- disintegrated, uh-huh. but Rome Rome fell, but no no power overcame Rome. We talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, but n- nobody overcame it, and uh-huh. and Rome continued. And then when they develop a religion, the religion has come to us in the Roman Catholic Church today. I wonder, is there some ties to when Rome and um, Rome and uh, pagan Rome and Catholicism merged? Well, 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 see, when the Constantine... Uh, you know, under the Emperor Constantine and Constantio and, and and those who 
were ruling at the time, mm-hmm. the connection was that they was basically uh, a pagan power. They didn't really profess a religion, mm. but a lot, but a large part of the Roman Empire was, was uh, accepting uh, the religion of the what the what they call the so-called Jews uh, mm-hmm. of the Jews, and and Rome looked around and said, in a in a, in a proverbial way of speaking, they said, well, if we can't beat these Christians, let's join them. And when Constantine marched his army through the water and so-called baptized them, mm-hmm. uh, and he lifted up a sword, and when he lifted up that sword, and I think some lightning or something struck it, then I think he was saying that basically uh, we embrace when we we're gonna embrace Christianity. So when they embraced it, mm-hmm. they brought in the 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 Jewish customs. And when they brought in the Jewish customs, they also still maintained many of their paganistic practices. Mm. This is why you see in the Roman church, they not only have sacred things that they do, mm-hmm. but like Christmas and Easter and all these pagan holidays, they still embrace that too. So they embrace truth and error, but, but it reached a point in 321 AD that they wanted to change. I think this was in the Nicene Council. Now, the Nicene Council was held in a place over, uh, they called Nice. Mm-hmm. And they call it the Nicene Council because it was held in a place called Nice, and I think that was over in Italy. And that was when they had these councils. They went on for years, and one of the things that they were discussing uh, in the Nicene Council in 321 A.D. was uh, whether we should, you know, we can change the Sabbath from from the seventh day to the first day. Mm-hmm. Not not literally that they changed it, but they were talking about changing it. And then they influence people to accept Sunday rather than uh, the seventh day as a Sabbath. And so what you are saying is that pagan Rome is embracing these customs. And as they embrace these customs, they were gradually making changes in order to be able uh, to become a religious power. And then when we read in the book of Revelation, what we see is that there's a time period. And I think we spoke about the time period that was ba- basically from from uh, from uh, uh, what what was that 538 A.D., which was to 1798, which was 1200 and and uh, 60 years. Mm-hmm. That the reign of the papacy and the papacy come from the Catholic Church. That they were making these changes. Mm-hmm. They started in 321 A.D., but during 538 to 1798 was when they were actually making notable changes in Elohim's law. Mm. Wow. So you said that's when they began to make changes to the law. Yeah, the papacy. They they was making a lot of changes. Like Daniel says, that uh, they they would uh, seek to change times and laws Uh in the book of Daniel. And so it was during the time of the reign of the papacy that they did that. Wow. Well, so that's when they decided to change uh, the holy day from Saturday mm-hmm. to Sunday. Right. And it was a uh, number of other changes. But since we were talking about tomorrow, the beast, that was one of the changes. Well, what were some of the other changes that was implemented also? Well, some of the dominant changes is what we have, I think we've discussed, but, uh, you remember how they uh, they changed not only the Sabbath day Sabbath, but they changed the feast days. Yeah, they they brought in Christmas and Easter and all of this to replace Elohim's true uh, 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 holy days. 
See, today we call them holidays, but in the Bible they call them holy days. But holidays seem to be more paganistic, but holy days are the sacred days that Elohim gave. So yeah. not only was the Sabbath changed, but also the, the feast days that we keep annually, they were also changed. Wow. So we had the Sabbath, the feast days, and, uh, and now outside of them, were there any other subtle changes they made? Well, you know, they were not really subtle. They just made them boldly before our face. Wow. And matter of fact, mm-hmm. if you, it, they'll tell you, to, they'll tell you them, themselves that they said that out of the Seventh Day Adventists and the Jews, mm-hmm. they said they they tell Christianity. They said, "Why are you keeping Sunday? Because we are the one that changed it from the seventh day to the first day." They boldly claim this. They 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 lay claim. They don't back up on it. Mm. And they they said Adventists they 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 are they still keep the the true Sabbath, and the Jews keep the true Sabbath. Uh-huh. But then again, we as at, at uh, then they then uh, even though they say the Adventists and the Jews keep it, uh-huh. they come out they come out uh, they come out and say also that they'll give you uh, I think it was it, it was one of the um, it was one of the bishops of the church uh, I think yeah I think his name was Canwright uh-huh. uh, no not Canwright but Enright he says that he would offer. I think it was a thousand dollars to anybody that can show in the Bible uh-huh. that Elohim changed the seventh day of the week being sacred to the first day. He said, show me in the Bible. He said, uh-huh. I'll give you a thousand dollars. And then he goes so far as to say, not only would I give you a thousand dollars, you show me, show me where he changed the sacredness of the seventh day to the first day. He said, but I give you a thousand dollars. If you can show me where he replaced Passover and the other feast days uh-huh. with Christmas, Easter, and other holidays. He, they, they say that. They don't put it under the rug. They put it straight out there, okay? Wow. And then when they made those changes uh, uh, of the holy days, there were other changes that they also, uh, they, they, they were making, uh-huh. just like uh, when you talk about uh, the state of the dead, uh-huh. which is a doctrine that uh, when you die, they can pray you out of pur- purgatory and stuff like this. Yeah. You, you can't pray nobody out of purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach us. When you're dead, you're dead. But people go to the Catholic Church and they go to the Catholic priest. They say, can you pray my loved ones out of, of purgatory? I got $500. And if you can do that, you get them out. There was a number of changes. And when you start going through the council that they had at Nice and also uh, during the time of the reign of the papacy, they made a plethora of changes. Wow. And, you, you know, it's interesting how you said, you know, that, uh, the Adventists, you know, they keep the Sabbath and everything, one of the only churches outside of Judaism. But the Catholic Church can basically say, well, you guys are keeping Christmas, you're keeping Easter, and all these other pagan holidays. Where do you think that came from? Yeah, you do keep Sabbath, but that came from us mm-hmm. also, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, uh, one, of the, one of the things uh, that's going to happen to Sabbath-keeping churches uh, like the Seven Day Adventists and the Seven Day Baptists and other organizations that Seven Day Holiness and and another not just the Adventists but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them first a uh, lot of other churches that keep Sabbath in other denominations. One of the problems that you just articulated is what they're going to have to deal with because when they actually force you 
Mm-hmm. Uh, like when we was talking in our uh, discourse today, if, when they actually force you to keep it and you tell them, say, hey, I, I'm not going to keep Sunday as holy because I keep I, I keep the Sabbath. I can't take it. And then what they're going to throw in your face is, okay, well, they're going to say, well, you go ahead and keep it. But do you know when you keep Christmas, Easter, and others, we gave you that too. Yeah. So how can you say you keep one and don't keep the other? Yeah. And that's one of the things that we're going we're gonna to be scuffling around and trying to say, well, well, why am I keeping part of it and not all of it? And then a lot of people who can't stand the pressure of what we call uh, the death decree before them, mm-hmm. and they came by and sell, they're going to say, well, you know, well, it might be, not be so bad since we are keeping Christmas, Easter, and the other day. We ought to be able to keep Sunday and still worship Elohim. Yeah. Yeah, that'd give a good, good compromise. And, you know, to be honest, I think we saw little hints of that within the past two years with this pandemic. You know, um, I think you saw a lot of people fold under the pressure of not being vaccinated to being vaccinated in order to go in certain places that they were saying you can't buy a cell here without being Mm -hmm. vaccinated, you know. Mm And I think you know, all this stuff was just a pretest mm-hmm, of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But see, but see, what you also noticed during, uh, d- during that time uh, is that it was kind of like a filler to see who would do it. Okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but one of the main things that that you look at in that scenario uh, is that it produced the type of mentality that it's going to produce during the time when the mark of the beast go forth, when they say, you got to do this, mm-hmm. then you got to say, well, if I responded to that this way, how would I respond when they actually came out and made it a law that you have to do this? Yeah. How, 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 how are you going to be able to stand? Yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's going to be the same thing that when Daniel came into the courts of Babylon with, uh, uh, Azariah, Michelle and Hananiah, when they, all four of them came in. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down to the statue. Yeah. And if they didn't bow down to the statue, and then Dan, they wanted Daniel, uh, uh, they wanted Daniel to stop praying to his Elohim. And they said they called Daniel praying. They want to put him in the lion's den. So the lion's den was a death decree, mm-hmm. and the fiery furnace was a death decree. Now, can you tell me that when you read in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar brought all of those Jews into Babylon, that only four people stood up? Yeah. It was more Jews came in there, so they must have been bowing down. So we are saying in the last days, True. the same thing is going to happen. What is going to happen is that just like the coronavirus said that you must do it, then now you're saying Sunday is the mark. And uh, and how if you if you look at only a few, like Daniel, Michelle, Azariah, and Hananiah, those only four in that empire. How many think? How many people do you think you're gonna have standing in the last days? Yeah, you know you got to think about that. But uh, but when you look but when you look at these scenarios, you know they are not just being played out. Uh, for the government, but we have to look at it from this standpoint of the spiritual discernment to know that a greater test is coming. Yeah. 
Because you know all these things that's been going on, I, I feel it's just you know uh, they're putting it out here to see where people are at, and mm-hmm. then they're going back crunching the numbers, okay, and plotting and saying, okay, we need to come at this angle. Because just like I was talking with someone the other day, I'm like, you know, pretty much I feel this whole pandemic thing is over. They're about to go to the next thing, and the next thing, just like we didn't see the pandemic coming. The next thing is going to come from left field. It's not. I don't feel it's going to come the same way as the pandemic with this stuff, uh, infection of virus, whatever. I think it's going to be something totally from left field, so you did not see coming. You know. Yeah. Well, the main thing that we have to do we we don't have the answers to everything, but what mm-hmm. we got to uh, understand how prophecy unrolls, and I believe Elohim's spirit would lead us. Uh, when they start making other changes to know what to do and how to do it yeah. and and give us a discernment of what's going on at the times in which uh, is unraveling, the, you know, the the uh, prophecies of revelation. Yeah. Now, you were saying, too, that the mark is not just Sunday worship. Right. For it to be the mark, it has to be Sunday worship, the death decree, and you won't be able to buy or sell without the mark. It had all of those encompass the mark. Right. That, that, that's your mark. See, and when they put that, put that in law into practice, then uh, what that is, is that's telling you that they're going to make it mandatory. Mm-hmm. Okay. So once they make it mandatory by law and you got three branches of the government, what are the three branches? You got the legislative branch, you got the judicial branch mm-hmm. and you got the executive branch. The legislation is where you make the laws. Okay. The judicial branch of the government tells us, um, is this law practical? You know, does it make sense? You know, that's what the judicial branch does. Mm-hmm. And then once they say, well, it makes sense to us, even though you know, the people who was against it might not, but when they say, all right, we got it in place. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to go to the executive branch. Now the executive branch is a branch of the government that's, that carries carries it out. Now there's a lot of laws, both state and federal, that are still on the books, but the executive branch does not enforce those laws. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to these laws, it's going to be enforced by the, the executive government. Mm-hmm. The executive government going to have a decree that, hey, wait a minute, we got a, a law. If you don't keep Sunday sacred, you're going to be put to death. And then you have to make the decision. Are you going to be put to death or are you going to succumb to what they're asking you to do? Wow. Wow, that's something we have to really prepare ourselves for. Well, I don't know if you can really prepare yourself for it, but it's, mm-hmm. it's coming. But, but uh, we have to do what Daniel did. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's no game. It's no trick. You just got to be in your audience chamber with Elohim. You got to be locked up with him. You got to pray to him. Now, some people will be uh, killed. Some people won't buy and sell. That might happen. But some of us won't. Mm-hmm. Elohim is going to protect us. But yeah. the main thing is like the three Hebrews, when they were put in to the, before they were put in, they told Nebuchadnezzar, our Elohim is able to deliver us. Yeah. But then they didn't stop there. They said, but even if he don't, we're not going to serve this this stuff, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So we got to be prepared to die or to live. So the main thing that we have to do is make sure that we are, uh, are trusting in him. That's the main thing, trusting in him. 
stand in the word, praying, and make sure we stand with him. And come what may, if he allows us to get past it, fine. But if he said, you know, your time is up, then fine, okay? But he's still in control. So stay in touch with him. Well, I think that was an excellent point to end on as we transition to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So uh, today I want to talk about and ask some questions to the pastor about head coverings. Because uh, a lot, some religions you see their women, they cover their head all the time when they're out in public. Some only in uh, religious services. And as you see, me and my dad and I, we're wearing kofis. Why is that? So if you have your Bibles, I want to deal with some Bible verses and ask some questions in regarding to head covering. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 3 through verse 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. And it reads, By I would have you know that the head of every man is Mashiach, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Mashiach is Elohim. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of Elohim, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in Elohim. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also of the woman, but of but all things of Elohim. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto Elohim uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be conscientious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of Elohim. Uh, one of the things I noticed too, Pastor, is that it seems to sound like an order of things. Because it first starts out how uh, Elohim is the head. Mashiach reports to Elohim. Man reports to the, the Mashiach, then to Elohim, and then the woman mm-hmm. 
the woman is of the man. So it sounds mm-hmm. like he he's stating an order here. Hey, he definitely is, right? So now when it comes to uh in verse four, when it says that a man who covers his head is is dishonoring his head, what does that really mean? Uh well, we have to understand what Paul is talking about. He's, uh, Paul wrote a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Even Peter, when he read the, some of the writings of Apostle Paul, and, and some Bible scholars said this may be one of the passages that even Peter had a problem understanding because when you read in the Bible, it says that Peter says uh, some people, they they, rest, they wrestle with the Scriptures and uh, uh, trying to understand them. Uh-huh. And then he points out, he said, and even in the writings of Paul, many wrestle with his his writings, and they difficult. To, he said they are difficult to understand. Uh-huh. Okay, now one of the keys to understanding uh, Paul is this: Paul makes a lot of uh, inferences, or he says a lot of things that he himself may say, uh-huh. but is not necessary Elohim saying it. Okay. It's like, now some of the, some of the uh, ways you can tell when Paul is speaking, he may make a, uh, he may make a phrase like this. <laughs> he may that, he, he may admonish you to do a certain thing. Then he'll come back and say, uh, I speak as a man. In other words, he let you know that Elohim hadn't said it, but I speak as a man. And he is saying that the advice that I'm giving you is something that I'm coming up with and not Elohim. But the reason why I'm coming up with it, it makes good sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so that's the first thing that you want to understand about Paul is that he says some things that is not endorsed by Elohim, but rather he's just given common sense approach to something. Okay. Now, now the second thing that you want to consider is that when Paul talks about head coverings and all of this, uh-huh. you got to understand where is this coming from? Because you remember that Elohim gave Moses the Torah, and the Torah contains everything that he wants his people to do. Okay. So if, if the Torah is everything that he wants his people to do, and it's not in the Torah, then where is Paul getting this stuff? Okay. Because when you look at the Torah, what is the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books are called the Torah. Okay. Why why are they the Torah and no other books in the Bible are the Torah? Because that's what he gave Moses up in the mount. Yeah. Elohim gave that. And then from there, when you have the prophets, when you read about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and all of those, they are really talking about the things that Elohim wanted his people to do. So the prophets are still expounding what it is that was in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that even when Israel got a king, even before they had a king, it said if you get a, a king, every king should have a copy of the Torah. So when a king of Israel sat on the throne, he should have a copy of the Torah. Solomon had it and David had it and some of the other kings had it, even though all of the kings did not follow it, but they had a copy of the Torah. Okay, so what am I saying? I'm saying so if you get into the New Testament and Paul is telling you what to do and what not to do, mm-hmm. if it's not in the Torah, then where is Paul getting this stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, a, a lot of this stuff that Paul is talking about, and especially here, 
He's given good counsel, but like you said, he's given an order of things. Uh But at the same time, when he said men should not uh, 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 cover their heads and women should cover their heads, this is no doubt when you read the background of this, many of the scholars are saying he's not talking about something Elohim has given. He is talking about uh, how society governs stuff, just Uh like in our society. Uh-huh. Okay, if we if we say that in our society that well let's let's go back a little bit further. Uh-huh. Back in the society of Moses, Elohim told Moses, he said, when you come near me, he said, take off your shoes. Because that was a form of worship, that was a custom in those days. And then when Joshua met the Lord, Lord of hosts. The same who told Moses take his shoes off, he told uh, Joshua take his shoes off. Now, does anybody have to take off their shoes when they go into worship today? Not basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may have a few places, but that's not a custom. So what Paul is talking about, a custom, and a lot of times a custom in one society at one time may be something that they should do, but in another time in a custom, it's not that's just not the custom of that time. So people don't abide by it. But what we need to do is abide by the principles in which Paul is bringing out here, not so much of wearing something on your head and not wearing something on your head, but what was the custom in the society? If the custom in our society is that a person do, wet, do not wear a minute skirt or something in the church, uh, that's a custom in our day, okay, uh-huh. that can be equated with wearing something on your head back in their day. But you're looking at the principle and not just what they are doing, but the principle of why they are doing it. Because in the world, they may look have looked at wearing something on your head for a man and having long hair. That, that didn't go with them. What went with them is that a man did not wear anything on his head. All right, but at the same time, in their custom, they were showing their hair or cut their hair. In other words, what he was saying is when they cut their, their hair short, that was more manly in their society. But okay. if a woman did the same thing, they would say, no, you know, you don't cut your hair, but you can't cover it up, but don't cut it. All right. But that's not a custom for our day in our time. Mm-hmm. All right. So when we look at our customs in our day and time, even though uh, the Bible did not literally say a woman should not wear a, a miniskirt in the church, nor should a man uh, maybe uh, come come into the church uh, with just a T-shirt on and a pair of pants and barefooted, that the Bible don't say that either. Mm-hmm. But common sense would know that when you come into the church, a man should be decently dressed and a woman should be uh, attired in the correct manner. It didn't come from the scriptures, but the principle is saying you should look decent when you when when you come and not to have so much bodily exposure because the Bible says of the sanctuary when Moses made it, Elohim said, Moses, when you make it, and I think this applies to Solomon too, do not make any steps on the sanctuary because if you go up the steps, I do not want to see your nakedness. So the point being is 
that Paul is probably talking about the customs of his day as they interface with the church. And Paul is saying this should not be. So there is no biblical law handed down by Yahuwah that a man should have it, should not have his head covered when he's prophesying or praying or even a woman having her head covered when they're prophesying and praying, there's really, it's just the customs of that day in, in Paul's time. Yeah. Because number one is if, if, if Elohim said it, then first of all, we have to get chapter and verse, wouldn't we? Yeah. And we can't find chapter and verse. So if you can't get chapter and verse, we have to go outside the chapter and verse to the society. Now from the time of Paul up until our time, uh-huh. is there any discrepancies that we see of a woman praying without a head covered or a, women, or a man praying with his head covered? Do we see that? Now, if you talk about a head covering, many of the scholars, when they look at this and when we look at it and when you talk about head covering, they may have been talking about the, the, uh, the shawl. Mm-hmm. And a shawl was something they, when they prayed, they put the shawl over their face like a tent mm-hmm. and they, they prayed with that, prayed with it on their heads. But men and women could put a shawl on and if a man put the shawl on and he prayed, isn't that covering his head? Mm-hmm. Well, if it's yeah. covering his head and Paul says, don't cover your head, then he's in violation by putting that, that shawl on his head. Yeah. But many of the Jews, when they pray, they put that shawl on their head and they had the three corners with the CCs on there because mm-hmm. the Bible says you should have the CC on four corners of your garment. And since the shawl is a four-corner garment, it has the CCs on there, and they put that over their head, and they pray. And then when they get through praying, they take it off. Mm. So they would have been in a violation uh, by doing that if they followed what Paul was saying with that custom and that time at, at that time. But it was not so. So also, too, is, as it states, too, uh, that a woman with long hair, her hair is given to her for a covering. So... Is he saying that for a woman's hair is a covering? Yeah, she's saying it's a covering, but uh, he's saying in addition to that, uh, if she don't cover her hair, she might as well cut it off. It's going to be a shame. Mm-hmm. And that's not coming from the Bible from anywhere that I know. It's coming from the customs of their society. So it's more of we shouldn't take that as literal because that was the custom then and the custom now could be totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we can take the principle of what, what Paul is saying that what we do in the church as we do in the world should be decent. You know, uh-huh. I see a lot of people, they don't even cross the threshold of a church, but when you look at them, they look so intelligent because they dress so decent. Okay. I think that kind of clears it up in regards to that it's more of an opinion than it was a law at the time we have yeah, just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I just said, yeah you know it's more the the customs and and paul's uh, way of interwoven the customs within the uh the assembly of his people all right and we have uh two questions that we've got through email the first okay. the first question reads did God bless the seventh day while he was resting upon it or when his rest on that day was passed? Okay. Uh, 
said, well, let's start. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to read it over one more time. It said, did God bless the seventh day while he was resting upon it or when his rest on that day was passed? Okay. Uh, okay. Let's let's go to uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter one. Okay. And in Genesis chapter one, here it says in verse thirty-one, Genesis one, chapter thirty-one, it says, "And Elohim saw everything that he had made, and behold." It was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, what I want you to notice is that oftentimes in the Bible, uh, Bible will end a chapter uh, at one place and start a new chapter. But keep in mind that the Bible was not written in verses and chapters. This is something uh, that was added later. Not to say that it's wrong, but to say that sometimes they may cut off in a certain point where in actuality, if you're reading it in its original, it wouldn't have cut off at that point. So when it says, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day, now here's uh, what we want to look at in conjunction to your question. Now, most likely, the first verse, uh, the first three verses, most likely the first three verses of chapter 2 possibly should have gone with... uh, with the first chapter, and it should have been after 31, it, number 1, 2, and 3 should have been uh, verses 32, 33, and 34, but we have it as 1, 2, 3, okay? Uh-huh. All right, but the point I'm trying to emphasize, when did he rest? Well, here's, here's what the Bible says. It says in the evening or morning in verse 31 of the first chapter was the sixth day, Okay. So what's after the sixth day? All right, let's read verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, that the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. You see how that should have been with verse uh, 32 of the first chapter. That's, that should have been there, mm-hmm. because he said, he stopped. He, he, he said, even in the morning with the sixth day, when he made everything very good. And then he's coming and saying that the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, that should have been a part of, of that. So he said, everything is finished on, on, on the sixth day. Okay? okay. And then he comes back and says on verse 2, and on the seventh day, Elohim ended his work, which he had made. Okay. That might, this may be what you were referring to. And on the seventh day, Elohim ended his work, which he had made. So in other words, he said on the seventh day, he ended his work. Now, if we look at seventh day as a 24-hour day or the uh, or the evening and the morning being a full day, when he got into that, when he got into the seventh day, his work was already ended. When he got in there, he said, and ended his work, which he had made. So when he started coming into the Sabbath, his work has already ended. And the Bible said, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, if, the, if it's a 24-hour period... There's no portion of it in which he worked. Uh He rested on that day from all his work, which he had made. He said he rested from everything. Okay. Now, here's the other verse. In verse 3, it says, And Elohim blessed the seventh day and sanctified it 
because in it he had rested from all his work, which Elohim created and made. So no, he didn't work on any part of it. When it first came in, he rested all the way until it was over. Okay. All right. The second question, it reads, do you think the sign of the cross that the Catholics make will be a part of the mark of the beast? The right hand and the forehead are used in making that sign. Uh, well, let me answer in two ways. One is, uh, you know, I there's there's a lot about the signs that the Catholic make, and there are even videos you can go on YouTube, and they talked about the Masonic signs, and you can see the Masonic sign with presidents, basketball players, and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So, uh, signs that is made with the hand uh, does have a lot of credence. Because yeah, okay, I believe this, it's the sign where they do the cross thing and all something like that, I believe. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I, as a chaplain, uh, and, uh, I, I work with a lot of Catholic chaplains. And what they do is when they come in, they'll say, uh, they'll say, I think, let me see, they'll say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, it, it's some sign they do that. So, uh, yes. Uh, that may have some credence, but uh, the way I'm trying to answer it is that those signs does have some meaning, okay? All mm -hmm. right. And there may be something behind those signs. Even in the Masonic Lodge, there are some, there's, there's some hidden meaning in, in these particular signs, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. But the second way I want to answer you is, is this. I haven't basically studied to make a connection between the signs that the Catholic make with the mark of the beast. I must be upfront on that. I haven't seen it, mm -hmm. but I, it would not be far fetched if it does have some connection with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if I were, okay, I'm not saying I am, but I say, if I were to make a connection between the hand, the hand sign of the cross that the Catholic make, with the mark of the beast, it would be this. Now, I want you to consider this point now. Uh, you got, well, let me, let, me, let me demonstrate it by going to the book of Revelation. Now, this is what I would consider with the question that you're asking. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1, and in Revelation chapter 1, uh, we want to look at, let me see, uh, but da, da, da. okay, Revelation chapter one and verse eight. Now, in verse eight, this this particular uh, passage is also repeated in a number of the other areas of the book of Revelation. But we just want to start with the first one. Now, the Bible says, "I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending." Okay. Now, my point is this: What is Alpha and Omega? Alpha and Omega is the Roman alphabet. And I think the Roman, uh, not the Roman, but the Greek alphabet, that is, because I think Romans use Latin. Okay, now, when it says the Alpha and Omega, that is the uh, alphabet 
of the Greeks. Okay. Now, what was Alpha and Omega? Well, when you look at the alphabet of the Greeks, they had, I think it was 24 letters. Alpha was the beginning letter, and Omega was the last letter, just like we would say today, uh, we go from A to Z, because A is the first letter of the alphabet, and Z is the last letter. So the same thing in Greek. You got Alpha and Omega. But now the question that we must ask ourselves is this. Did the Bible, was it originally written in Greek? No, it wasn't. John, when he was with Yeshua on earth, they spoke Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. It was not the Greek language. They didn't speak the Greek. When Paul was knocked down on the Damascus Road, Elohim, when he spoke to Paul, he didn't speak to him in Greek. He spoke to Paul. He, he says, sure, sure. He spoke to him in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So the translators of this Bible, when they translated Revelation, they wrote it in Greek, but it was tra- but but it was actually given in Hebrew. So if it was given in Hebrew, what verse eight would have read instead of Alpha and Omega, they would have said Aleph and Tav, because Aleph, because in the Hebrew alphabet they have about twenty three or twenty two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, twenty two mm-hmm. letters. And the first letter is Aleph that would correspond with Alpha, and both Alpha and Aleph, when they are translated in English, that is the A. That is the A. Uh Okay. Now, the Omega was the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But what is the last letter of the the, uh, Hebrew alphabet? It's Tav, which is T. Now, when you go back to the original letter, T, it's made like it's made like a T that is falling over. It's like an X. Uh-huh. It's like they take two, the, the Hebrew letter Tav, which is the last Hebrew letter, the twenty-second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like you crossing two T's. It's like an X. And generally, if a person can't read or write, what do they do? They put an X, don't they? Uh-huh. And when you sign a document, what do people in the bank or other uh, uh, companies say? They say, I want you to put your signature where? Where the X is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm saying is if I would unite the crossing of the, uh, the, 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 the hand that is making a T or a cross, I would unite it with this, which is the top, which is the crossing of the sticks that look like an X. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what I want you to see. Scholars alike are saying, when you look at the Hebrew alphabet, that the last letter that is like a T or an X, it represents the cross. And if it represents the cross, Elohim already before the foundation of the world knew that when he made that alphabet, he was showing us that if we sin, that that last letter of the alphabet is going to represent the cross. We have to come by the cross. So if the Catholics are doing anything, like they change the scriptures from the Greek, you know, and all this to the language that they wanted, mm-hmm. that they would make a sign of the cross, which would be the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what are they saying to us? They are saying if we don't submit to them, just like Yeshua was put on the cross under Pontius Pilate. If you don't submit to us, we are making a sign of the cross, not for you to see redemption, 
but for you to see destruction because we, that's where the same place we put your Savior is the same place we're going to put you if you don't go by what we say. And so the sign of the cross, I can see in that scenario. Okay. Uh, we have another question uh, regarding marriage and multiple wives. And it reads, could marriage or having multiple wives also be a different interpretation from what it says in the Bible today? Uh, well, as we say that the principles of the Bible will stand forever. I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, Elohim would change the principles of, of what we do today because if we did that, you know, uh, people can easily endorse and and uh, be able to uphold sodomy laws and, and things of that sort. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Bible teaches that Elohim does not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. You know, he, he's changed. He, he doesn't change. Because if he could change, he may, uh, you know, then he, he may need to w- wake up the anti-Diluvian world when they were destroyed by the flood and say, well, you know, down here in 2022, we made some changes. So I have to wake y'all up and let you know we made some changes. So we would have to apologize. We destroyed y'all for d- breaking this principle. Now they in 2022 are breaking it, but I changed it. So I can't hold y'all accountable. Now, well, you know that's not the truth. He's not going to do that. Uh-huh. It's it's just like it's just like when people was talking about the uh, marijuana laws and, and and stuff like that. They were saying that if uh, you condone marijuana on a federal level as well on the state level, that you can sell it and you can smoke it. Then what about all of the people that y- y'all incarcerated that sold the stuff and you got them in jail? Shouldn't you let them out of jail because now you are changing the law? on marijuana that they are put in jail for, but now the people are doing the same thing they are doing, selling it legally, but you got them in jail. Shouldn't you let them out? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again, that um, they're not probably going to uh, let them out of jail unless, unless they make another law. But the point that I'm trying to emphasize is that man, he'll make a law and change it. But Elohim, when he makes a law, it stands forever. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's go back to your question. Uh, read, read it again so I can get the flavor of it again. Uh, could marriage or having multiple wives also be a different interpretation from what it says in the Bible to today? I don't think it would be a different interpretation, but I think it may. Uh, um, now, earlier you heard us talking about um, how Paul was saying about the customs of his day and how it was impacting Elohim's people. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what I would say uh, to the person that's writing the question. Here's what I would say. Uh, uh, one of the last, I think one of the last states to come into the Union of the United States was Utah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I believe the reason why they didn't want Utah to come into the Union of States, and it was the last one to come in, I believe, mm-hmm. or is because they were saying that if we let Utah come into uh, being one of the states, they practice polygamy, and we don't want them contaminating the rest of the states with polygamy. We don't want it. And so that's why it was one of the last come in. Okay, was polygamy wrong? No. The Bible the Bible uh, never frowned on polygamy. Matter of fact, if the Bible frowned on polygamy, he would be frowning on all of the children of Elohim because yeah. Jacob had plural wives, okay? And he had plural children. So all of the children would have been illegitimate. So he's not changing the law. He is saying that 
plural wives is not something I frowned upon. Even when David took uh, Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, and had a child by her, the reason why he was wrong was not because he had another woman, but he took another man's wife. See, in the world, they could do that, but according to the laws of Elohim, they could not take a man's wife from him, but they can get as many wives that they could. You remember when neighbor, when neighbor's uh, dad, uh, David, took Abigail because she was free now. Why? Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that neighbor was dead. And so he could take her in as his harem of wives. So what Elohim was looking at, he told David, when you took Uriah the Hittite, wife and you did what you did you were wrong and he even went so far the prophet i think nathan told david uh through elohim he said david elohim would have given you even more wives if you wanted but why did you have to take this man's wife Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the plurality of wives was not the question The, the question was that the wives that you had was legitimate and it was just one seed. Mm-hmm. But if it was more than one seed, it was frowned upon because when Reuben, when Reuben laid with one of Jacob's wives, Jacob could not go into that wife anymore because what happened? All of the rest of the wives only had one seed from Jacob. But if Reuben put his seed in one of the women, that's two seeds. And he frowns upon two seeds. Now, I know it seems a little impractical, but he has allowed men to have more than one wife, but a a woman can have only one man because you can only deal with one seed. Mm -hmm. And because the Bible says in the book of Leviticus, you cannot plant your field with two types of seeds. You can't put oak seeds and wallamental seeds in the same patch. He said you can't do that. Don't mingle the seed. And it's the same thing with the sperm of a man. You cannot have two sperms. Of, of a man in one woman. You can't. That's adultery. But mm. you can have one seed to go throughout all of the women. All of the women had Jacob's seed. Mm-hmm. So when so so when one, one of his handmaidens was seduced by Reuben, then Reuben was taken down. He was no longer the firstborn. They had to give it to somebody else. So, no, it doesn't change. It's still here. Now, let's get to the, the, the other point. The, point. the other point is this. While the law doesn't change concerning that, then society may have a rule that says uh, you cannot marry more than one wife. That's the law of the land. It's like bigamy and polygamy in certain states uh, may be forbidden. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can't. You just can't do it. Okay, so if you're in that state, you have to make a decision that if you want more than one wife, are you going to go against the law of the states? or be in compliance with the Bible. You know, that's that's the decision you have to make. Mm-hmm. But like I said, if the Mormons uh, still practice that, you can say, well, hey, if they don't if they don't want it, I'll go to go to Utah, just like many people are saying saying, saying today, uh, when they uh, deal w- w- uh, with these, uh, what is this abortion law? Uh, what, what do they call it law? Roe versus Wade. Yeah, Roe versus Wade. You know, if the state said, well, we're going to go against it, they might say, if I want abortion, I go to another state that's for it. Mm -hmm. But right now, they're still toiling with it. But what the point that I'm trying to emphasize is states may have laws that are different from the Bible. 
Does it mean they're wrong? No, because in a society sometimes you man has to make certain laws in order to perhaps to properly regulate things that may not be in the Bible. Because if you over in Africa that they were saying the missionary was telling the Africans that, you know, if we baptize you into the church and you got five and six wives, uh, you have to let those wives go. Now, one of the problems, if they let those wives go, many of them cannot make a living outside of being with the chief who is their livelihood. And so they may go out in society and become uh, whores in order to sell a body in order to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. So a number of the decisions that they make when people come into the church in Africa, if they have more than one wife, they don't tell them now uh, like they used to, that you have to go and, and, and get rid of all of the wives and just have one wife. They don't tell them that anymore. But they say, if you come into the church where you got five wives, just don't get any more. Just keep what you got. Don't get any more. And, and they work with it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is sometimes to, to, to uh, look at the laws of society, they may be helpful because if everybody, if everybody is getting all these wives and then they are not playing child support and stuff, and all of all, all, all of all of this, then you got to say, well, maybe it might be better to just have one wife, because if you got two and all these wives, you can't take care of them. Then the government got to take care of them, and yeah. then me and you who pay tax, we got to take care of them. So that might be feasible, but yet still, it's not a violation to Elohim's law. We still can abide by His too. You know, I just wonder though, is having multiple wives was something that the Christian Church came up with? Because when you look at it, that most of Israel had multiple wives, and that is what caused Israel to grow in numbers. You know, because, I mean, look at um, Jacob, how he had multiple wives and ended up having kids and kids and kids on kids, and all, which made Israel grow. And so I'm wondering, was is it possible um with with the church taking a stance on monogamy, uh, well, uh, basically one man, one wife, and basically hindering the growth of Israel. Well, you can look at it from that standpoint, but uh, you know it may have. But what I'm what I'm saying is, like, basically, if you got a legitimate marriage of one woman, one man, and they mm-hmm. have children, and they have children and their children, children have everything. You can still increase it. But here's the yeah. point that I'm trying to bring out is that a lot of people in Israel who are well off like David, just like you, when you take Samuel's uh, mother, Hannah, she was in a plural relationship. Uh, Hannah and Peniah, they was married to Elkanah. Now Elkanah had two wives, but he was pretty well off. Solomon had about uh, how many? 700 and yeah. 300 concubines. Wow. But looks. Solomon Solomon was a billionaire. He could take care of all those folk. You yeah. know, he could take care of them. That was no problem. Yeah. And so what I'm saying, David, the one he had, he could take care of them, okay? Yeah. A lot of these guys that are pimping on these women, they can't take care of them. So why are True. you trying to get all these women? You, yeah. you can't take care of them. So the point that I'm trying to emphasize is, is, is basically this. Uh, when you look at Jacob, he had a lot of them. But now who was the closest in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because even uh, Abraham, he had after after uh, well, he had Hagar while Sarah was living. But after Sarah died, he got Keturah and he got more children. But mm-hmm. here's the point: 
when you look at the person that is the most close to Yeshua, it was Isaac. Isaac only had Rebekah. He yeah. didn't have any other others but her. That's all he had. And then when you read in the Bible and you see Yeshua carrying that cross, it was like when Abraham was taking Isaac to have him sacrificed, he was the closest representative of Yeshua than the rest of them. Mm. But he only had one wife, mm. you know. So, so my point is, is, you know, if you think about having more than one, one or two wives, you know, look at your economic condition. Because so dudes telling me that they can have more than one wife, and you might, you, you can, mm-hmm. but, but if you ain't got the money to be able to put out and to take care of them, you need to leave it alone. Yeah. You need to leave it alone. And you, now, you, if, mm-hmm. go ahead. You know, it's interesting too, because in a lot of African countries, in order for you to have more than one wife, you have to show that you can provide for all of them. And it's not, you know, I think a lot of these guys thinking, oh, having more wife and she can go out here and work. That shouldn't be. If you the man in that household, the head, you need to be able to provide for the whole family. If you got one or if you got 10, yeah. you know. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, if you're going to be a, a bishop or a deacon mm-hmm. or elder in the church, when he's when they, when they talk about having one woman and one wife, that that. That that was the, in their particular time, in their custom, that they felt that that was best at that time. Mm-hmm. I can't say that was wrong, but at the same time, if they had plural wives and plural stuff, I couldn't say that was wrong either. Mm-hmm. And when Paul talks about, uh, you know, plurality and all of that, he was trying to deal with the incest that was going on in, in the church of Corinth as well. Because mm-hmm. when you deal with the incest, it was like a son— was having a, an, an affair with his mother. Now, what do I mean by that? In other words, sometimes the father, if his wife may have died, get another wife. Mm-hmm. And when he got another wife, that was not the biological mother of his son, but his son was still having incest with her. Mm-hmm. That was wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they probably looked at the situation and said, wait a minute. If people are going to be over the church, you know, with all of, having all of these women, it's, it's not going to work. In my in this time and day, it ain't going to work, yeah. you know, uh, in Paul's day. So he said one woman and one man. And I can see the validity and the practicality of that. Now, if today we want to make a change, let's look at what the repercussions would be before we make the change. Because we can jump up and make a change and we, we, could, we could produce something that we wish we had not produced. I, I just wonder, too, how you were saying about the, the priest uh, with multiple wives. I just wonder, uh, is there anywhere in the Bible where people from the Levitical tribe, if they had more than one wife? Um, I, I, I don't remember seeing one in the Levitical tribe because Aaron and Moses came from the Levite tribe. Mm-hmm. See, now, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church, they may be a little more steep on this in, uh, in us because see the Roman Catholic Church, I think they had uh, they had three vows. They got the vows of poverty mm-hmm. and the vow the vows of celibacy, mm-hmm. and it's another vow that they take poverty celibacy. It's another one, but I can't think of other one. But but anyway, they teach their people, uh, especially priests. Now a deacon can get married, but a priest cannot get married. You know. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really against scripture. Yeah. But they are they are practicing 
uh, no wives. And here we are talking about we got one and we want more. They ain't got they ain't got none. Yeah. And we're not even satisfied with the one. Yeah. Because, cause, you know, just like from Aaron, uh, Aaron only had one wife, correct? Mm-hmm. He had uh, one, one, one wife and then Moses uh, had one, even though it's speculated that he may have had a wife while he was a pharaoh, but I don't, I don't see that in the scrolls. So he yeah. just had one. I know it talks about he was given a wife, I think, either in Jubilees or Yasher, but the thing about that was it stated he never consummated with her. And yeah. as far as I understand, in order for the marriage to be official, you have to consummate. So if he didn't consummate with her, then it's probably questions if that was truly a marriage. Yeah, I can, I can be questioned now, but uh, uh, some of that you got to read it with a fine tooth comb and kind of put it together. Yeah, I can't say it's wrong or right, but you got to put it, put some of that together because uh, when you read uh, in the Torah, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't see any of that in the Torah. Is what I'm saying. Okay. All right, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this chapter of this podcast? Our loving Father, we thank you again for the questions and for the probing into, oh, Heavenly Father, the word that we can practically do it in such a way, Lord, that it would be pleasing to you. Now, as we close this podcast, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit that has brought us here together may continue to keep us. Bless those who are sick and shed in, bless those who have lost loved ones and those who are on their bed of affliction, that you may give them healing and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Lord, may be able to go into the spirit of those who have lost loved ones to give them the hope and the comfort and the peace that, that they need at this particular time. Thank you, O Heavenly Father, for my host, that I would continue to bless he and his family and to do for him that which is needed. Bless me and my family. Bless each listener, O Lord, and their families. And most of all, bless all of our relationship with thee that we may properly understand what the mark of the beast in the right hand is that we can properly interpret it in the last days, how it should come about. Now bless us as we get ready to continue throughout the rest of the Sabbath, that we may have multiple blessings to be able to bless us, that when we come again into a new week, we'll be so refreshed and revitalized that we'll be able to do even greater work in the things that we do secular because we have taken time out for the Shabbat. And when you have renewed us, and recreated us and done for us that which is needed. We will be careful to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your precious blessings. Pray this prayer in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We want to encourage you to send in your questions and comments. And you can email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. That is our podcast for this week. Know therefore that Yahuwah Eloheka, he is Elohim, the faithful El which guards his covenant and the mercy with them that love him and guard his commandments to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom.